So here we are in the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. Um, but we've just begun the book of Acts. Uh, we just started last week. So you haven't missed much so far. Well, actually you did. There was a lot there in the first eight, eight verses of Acts. But it's not too far gone, all right? So you can jump in here with us. Today we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9. All right? And, and in today's section of Acts we see an interesting little bit of history as the followers of Jesus are awaiting the promise of the Father, which we learned last week was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, and the coming of the Holy Spirit would revolutionize how things were done by the followers of Jesus. But here in the gap, so the, uh, Jesus has, has resurrected from the grave He's seen them, he's talked with them, but the Holy Spirit has not yet come, because that's what he said. Remember last week, he gave them two instructions. He said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem, and I want you to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. All right, so the Holy Spirit hasn't come in that way yet. But here in this gap, we get to see how the disciples approached a decision that was important to them. All right, a decision. Now, we make decisions every day of our lives, right? You made decisions already today. You chose probably what clothes you're going to put on. You chose maybe what you ate for breakfast or if you were going to eat breakfast this morning. Um, you chose to brush your teeth for the good of the friends around you. Right? You made choices this morning. We make decisions all the time, every day. Some of those decisions are small. Some of them are big. But we make these decisions. Sometimes it almost feels like we make too many decisions in life, doesn't it? You ever get overwhelmed with all the decisions you have to make? It's like sometimes I go through the first hour or two of my day and I'm like, I'm done. I don't want to make any more decisions. No more choices. <laughs> and and we, we always have them coming toward us. Sometimes we can get overwhelmed by that because we know sometimes we can make good decisions. Sometimes we don't make great decisions. Sometimes we have decisions that we regret. But my point is we all have decisions to make. We do. And especially when it comes to big decisions, there's a lot of layers and factors that kind of figure into the equation. There's a lot to think about, a lot to kind of uh, imagine or, or process. And the way you see the world, what you value, where your priorities are, who's going to be impacted, all of these sorts of things have to be considered. That's why, especially when it comes to big decisions, it's... it's we sometimes almost freeze up because we're trying to figure out, oh man, this is a big one. This one really matters. <laughs> what am I going to do here? How am I going to do this? How am I going to figure this out? And if you're going to try to live your life as a Christian, your decision-making process will be different from those who don't have a Christian worldview. It just makes sense, right? If you're going to be following after Jesus, you're going to follow after trying to be obedient to do what he calls you to do, then it's pretty much a guarantee that some of those decisions that you're going to make in life are going to be very different, aimed in a very different direction than those that do not follow the Lord and are not concerned about that, all right? And so the big question that we're going to look at here today, um, the big thing that we're going to, to sort out is how do we make good, godly decisions, all right? So if there's a couple of you here this week that have been praying, Lord, show me what to do, Maybe he will. Maybe he will today. That's what we're going to look at. How do we make good, godly decisions? All right, so as we saw last week, 
Jesus told his followers that the promised Holy Spirit would soon be poured out on them. And that they were to actively wait. We talked about active waiting in Jerusalem for that very thing. And today we're going to pick up immediately after that last statement of Acts 1.8. Where he said, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses into Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. All right? And right here in the following verse is Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 9. And here's what it says. It says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, remember this, okay? These believers were just coming to grips with the fact that they knew someone who rose from the dead. All right? They had been going through their lives as normal people like you and I, But Jesus entered into their lives and began to do and say things that blew their minds. And to top all of this off, we we saw as we've studied through the, the Gospels before, as we've looked at the beginning of Acts, the thing that really capped it all off was Jesus told them ahead of time, he said, I am going to be crucified, that means I'm going to die on a cross, and I'm going to raise again. Now that's a, I've got some friends that have said some pretty wild things in my time, but that would beat them all, right? Really? Really, Jesus, you're going to die and you're going to raise again. Yeah, guys, that's what I'm going to do. And the first couple times that he said that to them, they kind of just blew it off. Well, whatever, we don't understand. That must be some parable for something that we can't figure out yet. But no, he said it multiple times to them. He said multiple times, guys, just want to remind you, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to die, don't freak out because I'm going to rise again. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Finally, he's crucified. And they're like, okay, that seemed really clear. (laughs) He's dead. We have seen that he is dead. We saw them put him in the tomb. He's gone. But three days later, what happens? He rises from the grave. And so over that period of 40 days, we saw from the beginning of Acts, over this period of 40 days, they're letting that all sink in. They're like, our entire categories have been blown out of the water. We didn't think this was possible. Jesus has continually done things. The impossible have been made possible over and over and over again. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him walk on water. Now we've seen him raised from the dead. This is radical. All right? So that's been happening. And they've been coming to the grips with the fact that, yeah, okay, we, uh, we know that you're alive. We know what's going on. And right when it seems like things can't get any more soaked in the supernatural... They're hanging out on a mountain, a little, a little hill with Jesus, and what happens? He's talking to them all of a sudden and starts floating, floating into the sky. And it's not just a little levitation a foot or two off the ground where they're like, am I seeing things? No, he just keeps on going. He's up, 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 and they're just like, what is happening here? And so what happens is they get to this spot where they're all just kind of like, And what what happens next? Two men in white robes, which, by the way, guys, that's code for angels. (laughs) These these are angels. These are messengers uh, from God with a message from God. They appear and say, hey, guys, why are you looking 
up. And they're like, are you kidding? <laughs> because Jesus is doing up there somewhere. Where is he? What is going on? And what do they say? They say, the one, the way that he just went up, that's the way he's going to return. It's all right. He told you this is going to happen, remember? And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Now, now what? <laughs> they're stunned. What are we going to do? I, I really think that the father sent those two angels down so they just weren't standing there all afternoon staring into the, the sky. <laughs> he sends the angels. They say, look, guys, it's what Jesus said. And in verse 12, it says, So then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's where they were. Which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now let me just say something about that verse real quick for you here. So first off, if you see this phrase, a Sabbath day, and you're not familiar with the Bible or familiar with Jewish uh, tradition, the Sabbath was the day that God established for the people of God to have a day of rest and worship. All right? And, and in fact, it's, it's in the Ten Commandments. It was a, a, a design by God to say you're going you're gonna to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. All right? And so what happened over time is the Jews built these different tra traditions surrounding the Sabbath that would limit what they did on the Sabbath so it wouldn't become like any other day. They wanted to set it aside to be this special day. And one of the things that they had um, put in place as a tradition was they, they had how far you could actually walk or travel on the Sabbath. All right? And a Sabbath day's journey was 2,000 cubits. All right? And if you were like, what in the world's a cubit? It was their form of measurement. All right? the, the ancient cubit was, was basically, instead of like a, a, a ruler or a yardstick or a tape measure, they took from the bottom of the elbow to the top of the finger, and that distance right there, that length, was considered a cubit. All right? Traditionally, what they found is that that's generally about 18 inches, roughly. Okay? Now, the ancient people, they were a little smaller than some of us normal people now. My cubit is 20 inches from here to here. Okay? And if you put that 2,000 of those, of that distance, it's just a little over, or just a little under three-quarters of a mile. Okay, so just to let you understand, the Sabbath day journey is about three quarters of a mile. And where they're at here on the Mount of Olives, or Olivet as it's called, was about, he says, a Sabbath day journey away. This is a very close place. John this morning announced that we're going to go ahead and go through with uh, doing a trip to Israel in the summer for those of you who want to um, be a part of that. And, and actually, I don't know how it's going to look here on this screen to our, our today's side screen. Um, yeah, you can sort of maybe see it. This is actually a picture today, uh, not today, but a modern picture of standing on the Mount of Olives. All right, and that's looking toward the west, toward the sunset, and it's really hard to see here. I'm sorry, guys, for our technological challenges today. But if you look that way, thank you, that's even better. You can see sort of the old city. If you see a little dome there, that's the Dome of the Rock and the old city of Jerusalem, all right? So it's just the other side of this little valley from, from Jerusalem. And, and when we go there, you'll actually be able to stand on the Mount of Olives where Jesus was and where Jesus ascended into heaven. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's a mind-blowing thing. But that's where this is, all right? And that was a very regular location for where Jesus and his disciples would go. 
And they would spend time there praying and lots of things there. And, and it was a, a very important place. What we also see um, in Old Testament prophecy, so several hundred years before Jesus, Jesus even came to the earth, um, we, we find out that the Mount of Olives has a, uh, a long-lasting impact on, on um, the world as far as a place of prominence and importance. In Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, way back before Jesus, he had, he had several prophecies about the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do and who he was going to be. Um, but one of the things that he talks about is he also prophesied for the end of all things. Zechariah looked forward into the, the future by God giving him this vision of what would happen at the end of history, the end of all things. And here's what he says about the Messiah when the Messiah would return to earth. In Zechariah 14.4, it says, And on that day, his feet, the Messiah... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the Mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So when those angels showed up and talk, or talking to the apostles and say, hey, uh, he's coming back. He's going to come back the same way he did. In fact, he's even coming back to the same place. He's going to come back right here. The same place that you saw him go up into the clouds is where he's going to return here on the Mount of Olives. And so then it says here in verse 13, it says, And when they had entered back to the city, back to Jerusalem, remember, when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now that's different than Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So what this is, is a list of the remaining 11 disciples. All right? Remember there was 12, but then we lost Judas. So there's 11, and he, he labels them out there. All, they're all here. The guys are all together, as well as Jesus' mother, his brothers, and many other followers. Now notice here... Um, that it said there in that first little phrase that they were, they were with one accord. Not that they were in one accord. We would confuse that with a Honda. That's not what's going on. But they're with one accord. They're together. They are, they are unified. And we're going to see that phrase with one accord multiple times through the book of Acts. And I think that unity is a real picture of, of the, the, the family of faith. Um, Jesus had, had a unifying effect on these people. I was tempted to kind of go through and take a look at some of the descriptors of the disciples, just the 12 for us today, because what you find is these people were from all walks of life, all different places, all sorts of backgrounds. Um, they had some seriously different political views. There was a lot going on here, all right? But Jesus unified them all. The people of God, guys, are a diverse group of people. They are. He unites us. Um, and, and so they're all here together in one accord, um, and, or with one accord. And, and Luke actually, uh, who wrote the book of Acts, I told you before he also wrote a gospel. He actually gave us a little more kind of an elaboration on what they were doing as they're here together for these few days. In Luke 24, 52 to 53, it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So what do we get from all those together? They were devoting themselves to prayer. They were worshiping the risen Jesus. And they were spending time together. 
That's what we see the disciples doing. If you really want to be technical, they were gathering and they were connecting. They weren't reaching quite yet, but they were going too soon. Some of you know what I mean by that. And this is what they really, this is all they knew to do. This was the active kind of waiting that Jesus had told them to do. He said, I want you to go and I want you to wait. So what are they going to do? All right, well, I'm gonna, we're going to pray. We're going to spend time together. We're going to spend time in the Word. We're going to go to the, the temple. We're going to worship the Lord. And so that's what they're doing. They were expectant. They were excited because, remember, when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's coming, it wasn't like, eh, the Holy Spirit's coming. No, no. Jesus was, was encouraging them to be ready for what was going to take place. And they obeyed him. They stay in Jerusalem. They're waiting for the promise. Now, in verse 15, let's read this. It says, And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all, about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Sorry, it's kind of a gross picture. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Damach, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, And let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So this group of 120 people, they're devoting themselves to prayer. They're spending time together. They're they're waiting for what Jesus wants to do. They're they're there, um, but they're really still kind of an unofficial group. Okay? Uh, They weren't exactly a church yet. They didn't even really know what that was. In their mind, they're, they're still they're, they're Jews, like their, their tradition, their cultural background. Um, they're worshiping the Messiah. Nobody really understands all that yet. But they were believers that not only was, was Jesus the Messiah, but that he was risen and that he was going to do what he said he would do. But they didn't really have an understanding yet of how that was all going to play out culturally. So when Peter stands up, this is really the first um, step of leadership from their group. Jesus had always been their leader. Jesus was the one who said, all right, we're going to go here. We're going to go there. We need to do this. Jesus was the one. Now, Peter had certainly been a leader among the the disciples, but this was now a larger group than that. This was starting to expand. And so Peter stood up to try to reconcile probably the most troubling part of all these events over the past several weeks. Now, I mean, the first big troubling part at first, obviously, was that Jesus was crucified. That was the biggest problem. But now that Jesus is resurrected and risen, now they they realize, okay, well, that's all taken care of. (laughs) That part's fantastic. But there was this thing happening in their hearts and in their minds. Even though they were celebrating the risen Jesus and they knew that he was here, they had still lost Judas. There was this place in their hearts of, of pain Judas had been lost. And and Luke here gives kind of this sidebar of information. Judas had committed suicide in a field. And we have, you know, we have those those details both in the Gospels and here. Now, when we think about Judas 
even if you're, you, you're not super familiar with the Bible, most of the time people are aware of Judas, who, what Judas did and who Judas was. And so for us, we always approach the scripture and we see the name Judas and we're like, oh, he's the bad guy in the story. He's the villain. We always know Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. All right? But, but you have to remember this. These disciples had seen Judas as one of their own. He had been their friend. He'd been their companion. He had been with them on all the ministry things. He had been right alongside of them for all these three years of Jesus' ministry. What they saw was they saw one of their closest friends just go down in a really bad way. All right, so their heart toward Judas and about Judas was very different than those of us who don't know him and just know he, was, he did some really awful things. All right? And so what did they do? They looked to the scripture to try to make sense of all this. Here, the, if you wonder what those two quotes are in, in verse 20, that's Peter quoting both Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And this would have been a really heavy source of grief for those who knew Judas. So they've got this mixture of a time of rejoicing, Jesus is risen, and the Holy Spirit is coming, but then this time of sorrow of we lost one of our closest friends. And they knew they, they, they wanted to move forward, and they were trying to figure out how they could do that. So that's what Peter wants to address. And I do think, let me start off by saying, I think this was good. They shouldn't have just stuffed their grief and act like it didn't happen. They needed to move forward. They needed to process it together. And so Peter offers a recommendation. Here's what he says here in verse 21 to 26. Here's what it says. He says, actually we'll just read verse 21 and 22 first. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of those men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right? Now, why did they feel like they had to do this? Why did they feel like they had to replace Judas? I understand needing to grieve Judas and the loss of Judas. I understand that. But why does, why does he stand up and say, hey, I think we need to replace him. We need somebody else to fill out the, the number of us. There's only 11 of us here. There should be 12. Well, I, I, you know, we don't have a record of Jesus telling them that they needed to do this. We don't have any record that the, the angels that appeared, they said, hey, stop looking up there. you got things to do. You need to find another apostle. We don't have any of that. Um, so as we look at this, I, I really wonder how much of this was motivated by their Jewish roots and the significance of numbers in their history. If you know much about the history of Israel, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Not only that, when Jesus comes on the scene, he calls 12 apostles. And on top of that, in Matthew 19, Jesus had told them this. He said in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I wonder if that's what the disciples were thinking about. They're like, okay, 12 really matters. 12 is the whole thing. 12 is, we've got 12 months. We've got 12 tribes. We've got, this is, this is important. We have to have 12. What are we going to do if Jesus shows back up here soon and we don't have a 12th apostle? We're going to have an empty throne. We can't have that. So we need to find who this person is. They wanted closure and completion because Jesus, Judas had surrendered his, 
his spot. And so here's what they do. Verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. The guy's got a lot of names. And Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take part in this place. The, uh, take, I'm sorry, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So this is really where I want us to put our focus today. Because I find this interesting. I find this whole decision-making process a little bit interesting. Now, I'm not meaning to disrespect the apostles here today, okay? But I'm not certain that this method was the best way to do this, okay? Nobody throws stones yet. Now, Matthias may have some stern words for me when I get to heaven <laughs> about this. Um, I, but still, I'm not, cons- I'm not convinced that this is the best way to make a good, godly decision. All right? However, I also find it interesting that this is exactly how many of us make decisions now. Okay? And I want to challenge us a little bit on that today. What process do we see here that the disciples took? What, what do we do? First off, they identified the problem. They're like, okay, we need to replace Judas. All right, that's our issue. Now, how are we going to go about deciding this? How are we going to figure this out? And they did some really great things that I, I want us to see. Here's, here's five things that they do. First off, they devoted themselves to prayer. All right, they devoted themselves to prayer. That's almost invisible up there. But believe it or not, it's written on the wall. They devoted themselves to prayer. All right, what were they doing in prayer? They're speaking and listening to God. All right, it's fine, Jeff. Just leave it, man. It's okay. Um, they, they devoted themselves to prayer. They're, they're talking to the Lord about it. They, they say specifically, Peter prays right there, Lord, you show us. We want to know what you have to say about this. Secondly, they spent time in the Christian community. And what were they doing in that? They were speaking and listening to each other. They were looking for other counsel, wisdom from the rest of the believers. All right, also good. Third, they searched the Bible for insight and direction. What's the Bible? It's God's written word. That's how Peter comes up with these these passages from Psalms. He's like, well, it does say that here. Maybe this is what God is speaking on this. Fourth, they used common sense, rationality. It's a good place to start, right? What did they do? They said, okay, let's think about this. Well, we need to build some qualifications and make some nominations and we'll use our head to try to figure figure this out, do the best we can with what we got. And then number five, they cast lots. They cast lots. Guys, what that means is they just rolled the dice. Okay? They rolled the dice. Now, speaking of rolling the dice, this was common in both the Roman and Jewish cultures. You may not be able to see this, you might. That is actually a picture from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City of dice. Now you might say, why on earth would a museum put on display dice? Because these dice are actually from this time period. Between, they, they estimate these dice are from between 30 B.C. 
to 300 AD. So it's a big gap of time, but these are really, really, really old. This is the time of Jesus. And I, I think what's fascinating is, gosh, they look like something that came out of some game that you bought at Target, right? Even the way that it, they're numbered, that we get the, 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 you might not know that dice have been around that long, but they've been around that long. And it was very common that these kinds of things were used. Um, you might remember in, the, the, in studying the gospel and looking at the, the end of Jesus' life, it tells us there that they cast lots for Jesus' clothing because they didn't want to rip his tunic in half. Probably what was happening were, were these, these uh, Roman soldiers pulled out a handful of dice and basically played some sort of a game to figure out what was going on there. All right? We still use dice today, whether you're spending time at the casino, at the craps table, or you, you know, Yahtzee at home, whatever, it's the, same, it's the same thing. Now, here's what is also important for us to understand. Casting lots was a well-established Old Testament Jewish way of doing things also. If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 28, where God is giving Moses instructions for the priesthood, he gives these incredibly intricate, detailed descriptions of, this is how I want you to um, build the tabernacle, these are the clothes that the priests are going to wear, this is what's going on. And as he's describing this whole, um, this outfit that the high priest is supposed to wear with all these gemstones, 12 of them, of course, representing the 12 tribes and all this in here, one of the things that's very interesting as you read through that is he says, and I want you to build this, uh, we don't really know exactly what it was, but basically like this secret compartment on the breastplate here that represents the tribes, this little pouch of some sort that is to hold what's called the Urim and the Thummim. All right? The Urim and the Thummim. Now, we don't really know what that means. We don't know what that was. Um, most scholars think it was probably two stones. Um, some say, oh, one was one color and one was the other color. We don't know. I've heard pastors say all kinds of stuff about what they were. We don't know. We don't have them. But it was something that was used for this particular um, usage when you had a, a decision that needed to be made and they couldn't come to a decision that the, the kings and the priests could go and inquire of God through this Urim and Thummim. And basically what would happen is they'd come together, they'd do this ritual, they'd pray through it, and then the high priest would reach in and pull one out. And if it was... Whether it was the, you know, the one that says yes on it or no or what, we don't really know exactly. But it was this external way of figuring out what's the will of God on this. Now that seems pretty random um, to a certain degree. But it was seemingly approved of by God at this time. God's the one who told them, I want you to make this. I want you to build it this way. In fact, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, when they went into the promised land... The way they got their plot of land was by casting lots. It might have been a little bit different there. They may have just put the 12 tribes in a jar, you know, and shake it up. And now we're playing bingo, whatever, right? Oh, you get the good, you know, pick your place. Um, lottery style. We don't know exactly. But it was an external way of discerning God's will. But without supernatural intervention, this is just random chance. All right? Now, I want to point this out about here what we see here in Acts. This is the last time that this method is ever used or recommended in Scripture. The very last time. All right? The reason is, 
God was about to give an internal way of discerning his will. It was no longer going to be something that was outside. What was going to happen was the Holy Spirit was now going to come and dwell people, indwell people. And, and that's exactly what Jesus said he would do. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the followers of Jesus were making the last Old Testament style decision that needed to be made. And the Holy Spirit was about to fill them in such a personal and powerful way that they would no longer have to rely on methods like casting lots. Here's the thing. Casting lots might be random, but it's easy. And we like easy, don't we? Isn't that kind of nice? Wouldn't it be great if I could tell you, and the Lord said, if you're following him, he will always make the dice roll in your favor, whatever, right? May the odds ever be in your favor, right? That's what's going to happen. You're going to roll the dice and he'll tell you, Lord, should I go to school today? Should I marry that one? You know, just, we're just, we'd all have a pack of dice in our pockets at all times. That's not what we find. That's not what we see. But we do like it easy. And unfortunately, many times we choose the path of least resistance, even if it isn't the best path. And for many of us, instead of discerning God's voice, we just leave it up to chance. If you want to make good, godly decisions, flipping a coin isn't your best option. That's what I'm telling you here today. How do you, as we wrap this up here, how do you make decisions in your life? Think about this a little bit. How do you do it? We all have, have broken models that we've inherited or developed in our lives. And people make decisions in different ways. Some people really rely on their emotions and their feelings, right? Um, they want to live in the moment. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. I'm going to avoid pain at all costs. If it's hard or if it hurts, I will not do it. Other people, they rely purely on their minds, on their intellect. If I can't figure this out and, and make a good objective decision, like I'm going to have to write some more pros and cons lists. I'm going to have to, you know, go talk to an expert. I got to do something else to figure it out. I need to have a backup plan for my backup plan, but I'm going to understand it and then I'll be able to make the decision. Others um, don't really want to make any decision. And instead, they're just like, oh, I'll just go with the flow. Uh, I'm just going to passively see where it all lands. Let somebody else make the decisions, right? But no matter where you fall on that, where is it, what is it that God has for you? How does God want you to make decisions? Now, I know that we've all got those patterns and those methods that we've used in the past, but how is it that God wants you to make these decisions? Because the decision to follow Jesus with your life is just the first of many decisions that move us toward spiritual health and abundant life that he offers. And I believe that he wants to, to reform and heal the way that even Christians make decisions. Because I'm, I'm concerned that too many Christians accept the broken model that isn't much better than just casting lots to make important decisions in their lives. Instead, I want to see us equipped to make good, godly decisions by using all of the resources that God has made available. 
So if we take the pattern that we find here by the, the apostles here, these five things that they did, and all we do is we replace casting lots with being led by the Spirit, I think we have a pretty good pattern of making good godly decisions. All right, so here they are again, just in case you forgot. This is in no particular order. But first off, the thing we're going to do if we're going to make a good godly decision is we should devote it to prayer. If you want to make a good decision, you want to follow the Lord with your life, you got to be praying, guys. you got to be praying. Soak those things in prayer, especially the big decisions, the hard decisions. Now, I know sometimes we make quick decisions, and there's, it's a short little thing, and there's not a lot to it. But especially when we're talking about decisions that, that impact a lot of things in your life, devote them to prayer. Secondly, search the Bible. A Christian should be reading the Bible. You just should. I don't care if you've read it before. You should keep reading it. Why? Because you don't have it memorized yet. Go ahead. Let me see your hand. Who's got it memorized? Cover to cover. This hand is not up, right? You've got to be reading it. Know what the, the word says. I, I thought it was um, um, funny a couple weeks ago when we had that guest, Jason David, and um, he was using Richard as the example, and he said, you know, what happens in, in life, and God comes up and opens up his head and goes through and says, well, what verses does he have in here? What's in the files? What's in the archive, right? It's what has been put into the head. What do you know about God's word already that the Holy Spirit can bring back to remembrance? We, the only way we're going to get that, that is by continually feeding on the word of God. So we devote it to prayer. We search the word. Third, when we have a hard decision, ask the Christian community. That's why we have each other. We can give each other good wisdom and counsel. There's been times where I have a, an idea or a thought where I feel like I should go this way, and then I talk to some of you, and I get wisdom that completely turns me in a different direction. When I realize, no, they're right. This is the Lord speaking through them to me. Fourth, still use your best judgment. You still need to use your head. God gave you a brain to think about these things rationally. It's not just this purely, oh, I just got to wait for the spiritual feeling and then I'll know. And so I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting. No, no, no. That's, that could be. That could be part of it. But still use all the, the facilities that God has given you. And five, the last one there, be led by the Holy Spirit. So you devote it to prayer, you search the Bible, you ask Christian community, you use your best judgment, and you're led by the Holy Spirit. Now you're actually ready to make good, godly decisions. And at that point, you make the best decision you can with the information you've been given, and then you trust God with the results. Here's the thing about decisions. And I'm especially speaking to those of you who get frozen by decisions, where it's just, it freaks you out, where it's a, a big thing comes up and you're just, you're paralyzed. It's like, I don't know what to do next. If you do this, if you go through these steps, what I believe and what the scripture tells us is that God's going to honor that. He's going to take care of that. There's going to be some decisions that you're going to make that are going to be wrong even when you try to do it this way. But God is so gracious and merciful that he has a way of fixing even sometimes our bad decisions. But we at least want to try to do the best we can and honor God the best we can with it. And then the thing to do after you've gone through that process, you've got to let it go. You've got to release it to the Lord. You've got to say, this is hard. I've got this one or this one, and these are hard decisions to choose from. I'm going to go through this process. I'm going to make the decision the best I possibly can, and then I'm going with it. 
And until the Lord tells me I need to move in a different direction, that's what I'm going to accept and go with. Um, you know, we, we love to quote um, some of the amazing um, promises in Scripture, like, like Romans 8.28. This is a very well-known one. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. And it's true. God will work things together for good in your life. But good, godly decisions cooperate with what God's doing. We, we can't just say, well, I, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to roll the dice and whatever happens, happens. God will figure it out. He'll untangle that mess that I made. No, what you did is you made a really poor, ungodly decision. And now you're dealing with the consequences of it. Instead, what we want to do is we want to be people that are making these decisions in this way. And God will. He will work those things together for good. So, as I finish here right now, um, as you process through some of these things this week ahead, um, you know, you may not have a giant, uh, a giant decision to make in front of you this week. But I think it's still important for us to think about these things, internalize these things, because guess what? Part of being a human being in community is even if you don't have a giant decision coming up, uh, you probably know someone who does. There's, we always have these decisions that are coming our way. And these are tools that are helpful for us to be able to, to love other people and care for other people. And I want to challenge you to maybe pick one from this list that you want to make a priority in your life the next time you make a decision. You might look at, that, look at that list and you're like, ah, that's the thing I never really do when I need to think about something. I need to choose something. And, and hopefully God will uh, direct us and lead us in that. Pray with me as we finish here this morning. Father, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. And, um, and Lord, uh, my prayer is that this morning's message, even though it's a little different, is just practical for people. And, uh, and God, we want to be people that honor you with our lives. We want to be people that honor you with our decisions. And sometimes that's really hard for us. But you love us so much that you've given us examples like this to show us the path to it. You desire to show us your way so much that you sent your own spirit to dwell within us. And Lord, we know that we don't always hear your spirit clearly. And we need to to grow to learn to hear your voice. And so God, I pray that you would help us do that very thing. This morning, I pray for any person here that maybe they do have a, a... a really daunting decision in front of them. Uh, maybe it's not for this week. Maybe it's a month from now. Or, or, or maybe there's some, some big life choices that have to be made. And God, I pray that you would bring your comfort. You would bring your discernment. You would bring your wisdom. And you would bring your direction um, into, into their lives. And Lord, that maybe these particular things that we talked about here today can, can help equip them and, and help... Um, guide them to to be right on your path we know that your path is the path to life in your presence there is fullness of joy that's where we want to be and uh and god so we just ask that you would put us on your path that you direct us and you lead us i pray all these things in jesus name amen